Welcome back to Fan of the Fans. I'm your host, Christina Garnett. Join us for another episode where we dive into fandoms and discuss what makes a fan and how these fandoms impact our lives. I'm really excited about this episode. I'm honored to have my book club joining me for a discussion about book clubs, Neil Gaiman, book talk, and so much more. So book clubs have been around for centuries, but in recent times, they've taken on exciting new forms. And I think a lot of that has to do with social media and digital communities. I was able to meet my guests through Twitter. I'm not going to call it X. Sorry, not sorry. Um, and we've been talking and making each other laugh ever since. And so, ladies, thank you so much for joining us. Hello, Christina. I am so excited to be here. I'm uh, Jessa Ferris. I'm an author, journalist, content director, TikTok creator, social editorial pro who focuses on the B2B space for my day job and etymology by night. And I'm also known to write the occasional Twitter horror story. And we're going to talk about that. Um, hi, I'm Sonia Bachez. I uh, love marketing for small startups and growing their brands. Uh, love books, reading politics, and I have a corgi and a baby girl. Hi, I'm Dia Jessing. I'm a book nerd. I'm always, you know, falling down an internet rabbit hole and generally love being an all out geek about everything books, news, TV, movies. And my job working in social media only enables me being a diet nerd. And I love it. Amazing. This is going to be a really great talk. So I'm, I am so excited. So let's just go ahead and go right into the thick of it. Book talk. How did you first discover TikTok, realize it was a thing and start seeing its impact? Because it is absolutely having an impact. You can't walk into a bookstore without seeing a little table that says seen on, on TikTok. So what are your thoughts? I mean, obviously as part of, you know, my job, um, you know, keeping on top of social media has always been, you know, part of that. Um, but then I also, was like that, you know, a resident boomer that I'm like, ugh, a new platform. Um, so it took me a little bit, but um, I really liked Vine. Um, so when that was kind of like out and starting, you know, it was like, okay, videos are becoming like a big thing. Um, and then when that, you know, transferred over to TikTok, it's like, okay, um, I guess this is happening. Um, but in terms of book talk, um, I think what really like brought me on board, especially for book talk, uh, was when there was that um, like backlash of people trying to like keep people out by saying like oh you're only reading this because it's on book talk or whatever and i'm just like why are we gatekeeping people reading that makes no sense to me like we want more people to read and if this is what captures them and gets them to read then like fuck yes let's do it like let's get that out there you know make it so that you know they're reading more and like you know hopefully start expanding the types of books that they're reading but right now it's like you know mostly like all the popular stuff but hey at least they're reading that <laughs> and reading more. So I'm, I'm all for it. Yeah, I hear that. Uh, Book Talk was when I first, where I first landed when I started to experiment on TikTok in like 2019, 2020. Um, that and etymology talk and advertising talk, of course, because I was simultaneously building my own TikTok account and then ad weeks. And recently, um, since I've promoted two books on TikTok. I was invited to speak at the Writer's Digest conference. So I have a lot of thoughts about this. And I brought some numbers too, if if we find that relevant. I, I think so. this crowd likes numbers. So I'm in. Um, we love numbers. Excellent. Uh, the Writer's Digest conference, just in case you're unaware, is for authors who typically write fiction so i tailored the talk to this um the the fiction writing audience which fortunately that's what book talk is into as well so i found a, a survey saying that 48 percent of american tiktok users read more books as a direct result of book talk resulting and these folks report a 60 percent increase in how much they're reading uh the book talk hashtag is, has over 1.67 billion views to date 
billion with a B. And then 90 million book purchases were made by BookTok users last year. 32% of people between ages 14 and 25 said they find new books on TikTok. And even like Barnes and Noble has end caps that say that market things as BookTok favorites. And even like the the reporting uh, systems like NPD BookScan and Nielsen have said that TikTok is definitely a factor in picking up print copies. But it also skews more toward particular genres, romance and YA being the number one. Um, and it's had the by and large the the farthest and biggest impact on both of those genres and authors in that space. Sometimes particular genres or particular authors it also like there's growth in adult fiction and fantasy but mostly those two and within those two particularly spicy book talk which i found entertaining i love that so would love to learn a little bit more about why do you think that's a thing like why do you think like would love to hear your perspective gia like what do you think about like why book talk is effective like why would it make someone want to try out these new books I think much like why we're all in this room together, I think it it has a sense of community that people feel like they belong to this larger group of people that are reading the same thing and that you can discuss online and be part of something bigger than yourself. And I think it brings people together in, in a cultural moment. And I think especially for me, like as Sonia said, like, yes, it's like so big for popular books and, you know, get people in the door. For me, that opened up that door even wider for niche um, books like South Asian authors, like Jess said, like spicy book talk. And so I, I love that I get and now I've like curated my TikTok feed to give me recommendations and I don't have space in my bookshelf anymore <laughs> because I want to <laughs> read everything. It's a everything. good problem to have. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. Sure is. I love that. So when we're talking about writing and we're talking about books and all these other things, I think it's, I think we can't ignore something that's been really heavily in the news for basically this whole year. We're talking about the Writers Guild of America strike. And so that's really started a lot of conversations about AI and writing and what are the implications and how do we save that? So would love to know your thoughts now that the deal is finalized and like the writers are getting back to work and we're seeing all the writers rooms opening up. Mm-hmm. We're all getting excited about our favorite shows and movies that are going to be um, working soon. Would love to know what are you thinking about this kind of intersection of writing and creativity and union? Would love to hear your thoughts, Sonia. Well, I come from this with a very nuanced perspective because my husband is currently building out a um, platform to help writers um, using AI and chat GPT and all that. And I think, you know, one of the things that like we talk about a lot is like, how is it that you're kind of getting that inner voice um, from people and not just having it all, you know, get to like the median of, you know, nothing really new, nothing interesting or creative. Um, and I think like where we're united in, in the belief is that like the human ability to be creative and then like come up with ideas and new concepts and thoughts like is always going to be there. And AI should be there to facilitate that, but not actually do the writing, you know. So a lot of what we talk about is like how it can help, you know, writers write more um, of like their ideas and like actually put that out into the world. And, you know, I feel as like someone who like also writes for like my for my job 
sometimes I have that like writer's block of like, how do I get over that? And I've found it most useful to, you know, kind of turn to chat, chat GPT and like ask questions and then get my, the wheels turning um, in order to come out with like the idea of like what I kind of like thought about. So I, I have belief that like, you know, creative human humans are always going to like will out. Um, and that's why I'm excited to see, you know, like what, what, you know, comes forth from, um, um, the you know writers writers guild and like the strike and everything but what I really hope happens is that it expands who is able to tell those stories because you know <laughs> we constantly see either you know the same people or like the same um, um, angles being told and it's like as you know Gia was mentioning like I want more diversity and I want more like voices speaking to like the different experiences that we all go through instead of trying to get AI to replace um, the writers like give me more of like people's actual perspective. I love that. That's fantastic. Gia, do you have a perspective? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you, Sonia. It's like, you don't want AI to make things even more homogenous than they already are. And, you know, I think the win that the writers did get is the studios knowing that that is where their value comes from. I mean, just look at during the pandemic, if we didn't have art and TV and movies and things like that to keep us going, that would have driven us all crazy. And it was already driving us crazy. So <laughs> we, we look... <laughs> Literally, we look, we we look to art, like the things we whether it's lyrics or music or movie or TVs, we look to it to give us a sense of purpose, inspiration. We all have different perspectives. We all feel different things when we look and we see and we watch these things. And I think trying to take that away from the writers and trying to tell them that they're not adding enough value was like a load of crap. So <laughs> I'm glad that the writers, I'm glad that the union won and I'm glad that there were people fighting for them. And I think that's, there's a lot of value in that. Love that. Jess, now you have a unique opportunity here because you, you're publishing a book. So I would love to hear your perspective as someone who has, has written books, has that out there? Like what is, what is your perspective? Absolutely. Um, yeah, for um, for our listeners, I have two books out. Well, one book out and one coming out on Halloween. Uh, my latest one is called Words from Hell. It did not involve the use of AI at all. Um, <laughs> I will say, however, during my day job, there are are uses that I have for AI. Sometimes it's ideation. If I'm like really stuck and I can't figure out like what are three factors that might play into this scenario and then I can use that as an idea to develop an article, but I'm never going to use that language to write something at an ed editorial basis. I might use it to help me develop copy for like a landing page, something that's more about informing the audience what they're going to get once I moderate uh, a session at a conference rather than something that is going trying to provide information and perspective and thought leadership itself. So I think it has its place. I have found it useful, but I also have like strict rules for myself about where it's applied. And I, you know, not everyone does that. Um, and I think it's been very trying for many writers coming to terms with the new technology that's shaping our world. And it it has certainly been an excuse for studios to devalue writers' work. I have I have family that works in the, the film industry. It's it's critical for them to for them to be valued. Um 
uh, we, we also learned from the last writer strike and countless other examples that you can't automate creativity, especially when it comes to innovative storytelling. Um, that, again, hasn't stopped studios from trying, and I'm sure they'll continue to try with the action movie of the summer or whatever else. Um, but the thing writers bring that AI still can't manage is creating something truly new that will strike the right notes because the author understands, feels, and appeals to the cognitive and emotional triggers and frisson that good writing it gives the reader and the viewer um like an ai can take tropes and smash them together and mimic pre-existing work to some extent but it can't tell how its output is going to make the reader feel and that that's a subjective experience um maybe one day it, it can mimic that but and you know today it can trigger some emotional reaction but if you're an experienced consumer of media you can tell whether a trope is hackneyed you can tell whether a rehash of something existed versus something you've never experienced before and it's new storytelling that really really shapes our zeitgeist i love that and i think that also points to a really good opportunity for us to talk about the why this book club even exists which is because um a gentleman very lovely and i think he still has covid i think he announced a couple of days ago so i hope he's feeling better if he if he ever hears this um but mr <laughs> mr neil gaiman um we actually got this book club together we've been friends on twitter and we talked and everything but we absolutely fell in love with neil gaiman some of us are new fans some of us have been fans for years and so got together to create a neil gaiman book club and then we also read other authors but obviously he's essentially kind of like our patron saint and mm -hmm. so um love the idea of talking about storytelling because neil gaiman has been one of my favorite writers for an awfully long time Coraline is is very near and dear to my heart. I'm an Alice, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland girl. So to see that in this beautiful new way, um, it's just very telling to me. So I'd love your thoughts on, we, we can talk about Good Omens. We don't have to talk about Good Omens. I'm a massive David Tennant fan, so I could do my own podcast about that, but we don't have to. Um, but would love your thoughts on Neil Gaiman as a writer. And also just, he was very, very vocal during the Writers Guild strike, which I think is incredibly powerful. You need the people who aren't hurt by it the most to be the loudest voice because it's really easy to ignore the people who could be who could lose their livelihood. They they don't have anyone knocking on their door for the next script or the next book or the next screenplay. So would love your thoughts on Neil Gaiman as a writer, as well as just him being so incredibly vocal and supportive of this push for writers' rights. Yeah, I mean, as a, as one of the newer fans of Neil Gaiman, um, I will say that something that we I can tie into the what we just talked about a little bit ago was I I'm very impressed that he continues to tell stories from many different perspectives, and I think as a as you know writer who's been doing this for so long, I think it's very easy to get caught up in like just saying the tropes and things like that. But I just constantly find myself amazed, whether it's the comics or the books or the shows, that there's always like a different nuance, there's a different perspective, there's a different story trying to be told. And I, I love that about Neil Gaiman. And I, and I love that I'm always surprised and I'm always delighted. And I'm also always taken on some kind of adventure. And, you know, again, tying that back to that AI question, it's not, it's just not something we're going to get from AI. Like I said, it can be a support and assistant, but we're not going to get those lived experiences and those that feeling of, of wonder and newness from something that AI, because inherently AI is being trained on things we already know and have done and it's seen. And sometimes you need someone like Neil Gaiman who's showing you things that you've never seen before. And I think that's amazing. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm also a newer uh, Neil Gaiman fan. I had seen... Um... Stardust and 
you know, really loved it, but I didn't really tie it back to him being the author. Um, and it wasn't until American Gods um, was, you know, going to come out that I was like, oh, shit, I should read the book first and then like be ready for when it came out. And I was just in awe that like he could take so many cultural um like gods and like spirits and all that and tie it all into like one story and have it all be relevant and really just speak to like this really unique story a storyline of how if they all existed how it would you know be like in the world um and then when I saw like the first season of the show I was like in a way just kind of like seeing really getting emotional um like seeing the gods put into like the actual context of how people believe in them and how that affects like their daily life. And I never thought um, that that would happen. Um, just, you know, I, religion isn't a, isn't a big thing for me anymore, though I grew up Catholic. Um, so to kind of have that be a thing that really affected me was like this like, oh shit moment of like, huh, you know, like that we can have these stories play such a huge part um, really matters, you know? Um, and then, you know, when we all kind of like got together around watching Sandman and reading, um, I have ne never really been big on graphic novels, but I'm like, okay, well, if you're gonna read any story, it's gonna be a Neil Gaiman one, of course. Um, so then I like, you know, zipped through that, like one through three and, you know, I still have what, seven more to go. But, you know, then I was just like, okay, you, you got too into it. But I love that he made me try this new um, format that I'd never like experienced before. Um, and to have that sort of trust that like you have in an author that like anything he writes now or like comes out with, like, of course, I'm going to be there like, you know, watching uh, like I did with Good Omens. I'm like, okay, so this is, you know, never ha had even like heard about this. I'm like, yeah, I'm, of course, I'm going to read it. And then I like watched it, watched season one and season two. And then um, from there kind of like expanded um, into like David Tennant like world and started watching like Doctor Who. So it's just like this crazy, you know, confluence of everything kind of coming together and like being some of like my newer, like favorite stories and fantasy and like horror even that, you know, I never would have like experienced if it weren't for like this singular author. And I think that that's just like, it speaks to him and like what he writes about. Truly, he, he really taps into that magic. There is, there's such a sense of wonder and like mind expansion mm -hmm. with him that I absolutely love. Mm -hmm. Jess would love to hear your perspective. Absolutely. That was beautifully said, by the way. Um, to your point, Christina, I really love seeing uh, authors, especially high powered ones that have, have, have that kind of cultural reach standing up for other writers. It only makes sense that they should, but I, you know, you know, see everyone doing it and i think that's uh really special and important especially in terms of uh how vocal he's been and um in terms of fandom so for me like while i love neil and his works especially american gods Coraline, which i just got a, a really nice signed version from the golden note bookstore in woodstock mm -hmm. new york Yay. oh I love, i'm so excited and then of course sandman um it's, it was actually Sir Terry Pratchett's writing and storytelling that first led me to read and reread and reread Good Omens and mm -hmm. Terry's Discworld books. He's one of my favorite authors, possibly my favorite, um, and my ultimate comfort read, whose writing style has the biggest influence on my own, even though I pr primarily write nonfiction. Um, the wonderful thing about Neil with regard to Good Omens, though, is that he understood Terry so well and worked so well with him that their writing blended wonderfully. And he was able to carry that both to the screen for the series and even pass the original book into new storylines. He embraced Terry's humor for the series in a way that I don't see as much in in uh, works that he has solely authored in the past. 
um, though clearly Terry has influenced his style as well. He also embraced Terry's progressive-minded approach to storytelling, which I love. The Discworld series addresses non-binary gender identities, same-sex relationships, racism, sexism, xenophobia, and politics in an extremely thoughtful and forward-thinking way that still holds up well today. And I love that Neil embraces those priorities as well, and it's now reflected in Good, good Omens every step of the way as it evolves, um, which I think also showcases how um, influence fuels creativity and innovation in a way that AI has yet to replicate. I completely love that. That's I couldn't have said that better. I I really can see the the reverence that he has for Terry. Anytime, like there's a couple scenes where you can see his hat in the bookstore and in, in the bookshop, mm-hmm. and it just it just makes me very emotional. Or the idea of like having a screening and they save a seat for Terry. And there's all these pictures too that you'll see online. Um, where there, it kind of mirrors Aziraphale and Crowley because mm-hmm. he has Terry and he just looks jolly. There's no other way to really say it. He just he just looks like kindness incarnate. And then you have my favorite goth, <laughs> Neil Gaiman, like head to toe black. <laughs> and so it sometimes he looks like sometimes he looks like um, Sandman. Other times he looks like Crowley. And so it's mm-hmm. so lovely to see them together because you. You can't help but see the connection and how beautiful that bond is. And I really love how protective he is of it. Like he's, he's done some interviews where he's talked about the good omens that didn't happen that almost did and kind of like how they didn't understand how the producers and directors didn't really get it. And I, I think you can also see that in the shows that he produces, he tends to be incredibly protective, um, Sandman specifically, obviously good omens and I think he was one of the main producers for like the first season of um, American Gods. And then he kind of slowly walked away. And then you can kind of see how it, you could feel his loss. That's probably the best mm-hmm. way to describe it. And so I think it's just really interesting that you have that protective nature of the world that he's building. But also for this, it just, it's Terry's too. So he needs to be like doubly protective, which I think is really interesting. And I love that. I love how open he is with the fans, how kind he is with the fans and how he um, he's playful, which I really, which mm-hmm. I really appreciate. Like the whole in season two, he makes a joke about like, we'll see because he always says that he's always saying like, you're going to have to wait and see. And <laughs> for Crowley to be the voice of the fan base to be like, Oh, not again. Just tell me like, what are you doing? Um, I think so it's, good. it's so playful and so, so funny. So to me, I just, I find that's really interesting i would love because well, one is, second just because yeah, it's a ahead. tangent off that is yeah, that he's also a very excellent marketer because that we'll see is like we need season three <laughs> y'all need to go talk to everybody about this show so that we get the numbers up so it tells like the you know studios that you want to see the show so i think it's like great that he's also using it as like a point to like tell us that if we love this like series and like his work we need to be vocal about it so that we continue getting that show because otherwise you know it just goes off to like you know die which has happened you know before with American Gods and um I don't think we haven't heard about Sandman getting renewed yet or have we um we have but, you know, they're already filming it Oh, awesome. Or the, um, the probably yeah. pause now Ooh. because of the strike, but they, they were filming it because it had Sandman and his son on the beach. So yeah, I remember seeing those scenes, but yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, but then yeah, the fact that he he's learned from those experiences to now for this show be like, hey, you know, rally us to like get things going and moving forward. So excellent marketing, I'd say. 
I love that. And I think a, a thing to think about that too, is you also have the graphic novel Good Omens that just went bonkers on Kickstarter. So you have like the graphic novel version of Good Omens and basically all these little- You should tell that, that story. Like tell the story about how like the publisher didn't want to do it. So he's like, yeah. fine. <laughs> so they had a Kickstarter for Good Omens graphic novel. It's going to be illustrated by Colleen Doran, who has done other projects with Neil Gaiman, specifically um, The Sleeper and The Spindle, which is if you're a Sleeping Beauty fan, and I like was raised on Sleeping Beauty's absolute favorite Disney film, all the things, I really recommend doing that because it basically you have um, Sleeping Beauty and Snow White and they save each other. And so you have this really beautiful um, tweaking of a fairy tale, which Neil Gaiman loves to do. And so they wanted to do this graphic novel of it, of the um, Good Omen series or what we currently have. And the publisher just didn't think it was a good enough idea. It wasn't bankable. Like we already have the book, mm -hmm. we're fine. And so being impetuous and headstrong, they decided to do a Kickstarter and it blew up. They have such a fantastic fan base. The Good Omens, like Good Omens Twitter on its own, like not even talking about Tumblr, but Good Omens Twitter on its own is just absolutely feral for content. And so it's an opportunity for them to really put their money where their mouth is. And so you wind up having these opportunities to really showcase your love and your fandom. And so they've already passed it. It went over like 2.4 million pounds. They had all of these additions. And so um, I got one of the, I got one of the versions. I'm a backer. And so like almost, it felt like every 12 hours I was getting an update on new stuff I was going to get because all these other people had joined the, the Kickstarter. So the, there's going to be like satin ribbons inside and there's going to be pins and there's cards and there's like gold leaf on the outside and like all of these really beautiful flourishes to really make this even more special. And so I think things like that are really a testament to the fandom. It's enough to say like, hey, they engage with us on Twitter or somewhere on TikTok. It's another to say they just dropped over $2 million for us. And so I think it is a testament to that marketing, but also they realize just as much as we do how important these worlds are to us, like how protective and how much we love them. And we want to make sure that they get to live on and we can share things. Like as soon as they announced they were doing the graphic novel of Good Omens, my first thought was, I'm going to buy this. I'm, I'm going to immediately give it to my kids. And I was like, I don't know if they're ready for Good Omens now. I have like an 11 and 12 year old, but I want them to read this. Like I want them to know this world. I've already watched Good Omens one and two with my daughter like, I need you to like breathe in this world and live in it in a way that only reading it yeah. can do. Fans are powerful. Um, if yeah, they're not yeah. into, if they're not, or if they uh, want to explore some Terry Pratchett by any means, um, the Tiffany Aching series is about a witch and uh, she's definitely within their age range really good series and it's it's it also it doesn't pull any punches when dealing with like very uh deep topics like loss in a gentle and comforting but also like very mature way it's it's wonderful that's perfect that's a really also good really funny I, I would expect nothing else for terry honestly <laughs> so would love to speaking of all these things we do have spooky season halloween is coming up and we have someone on this call 
who has written some of the most bone chilling content on Twitter. And I'm not talking about clickbait for politics. I am talking about <laughs> a good old fashioned monster story. Jess, I, I just selfishly, I need to know more about the process because last year I was just like, like glued to my phone reading and just like <laughs> with this like sense of dread but this sense of like thirst to like read more of this so I just I just want to know anything you're willing to share with our listeners about your story oh thank you so much I appreciate that um <laughs> I I in my every once in a while if something scares me or if I really like a like a horror story or a horror book that I'm reading if I if I'm thinking a lot about a horror film or something I'll like translate that feeling into my personal life and and every once in a while I get an idea to write a like a scary story to go with it and the story like I write it because it scared me and I had a scary dream about it so I want to put it on paper and make it fun and exciting because I can't like stop thinking about it so I was running around my neighborhood and I found a scary fence um and I found and I was like wow that fence is really scary it had like police tape across it it didn't seem to go anywhere like they went up a creepy hill um and uh the fence was all mangled and creepy and overgrown and I was like oh man it'd be super scary if I heard somebody scream like just on the other side of that and then that got stuck in my head and I was like running home at night and it was dark and I was freaking out and then I had a scary dream about a scary monster and I was like well here's a story so um I, <laughs> I just like started writing a, a, a creepy story because I wanted to and I didn't I was like I don't know where to put this. I'm going to roll it out on Twitter, which I had written a, a scary story a couple of years ago, rolled out on Twitter as part of like a, a brand um, commission from Scott's Miracle Grow, which I know weird, but it was cool. Um, <laughs> so I was like, OK, I'll roll it out on Twitter. No one will read it. Uh, like five people will see it and it'll be on Twitter. Cool. Done. So I rolled it out. And not only did like not just five people, but like five million people see it. Um, but uh, I think it, I think that's somewhere around where the the impressions landed on that first tweet in particular. Um, but but people a thought it was real, which I it didn't occur to me once that people would think that story was real. I, 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 I live, did not. <laughs> I live like twenty minutes from the Blue Ridge Parkway, and like half of TikTok will tell you <laughs> if you were near the Appalachian Mountains, the monster you described actually is real so I'm just sitting here thinking like you're an educated woman Christina this is yeah. not real. And I was like but the mountains are right there <laughs> well, you, blurred. Like, you know that yeah. Jess runs like on a you know a pretty much daily basis and she'll sometimes tell us about it. she's out with the dogs and all this and all of a sudden this starts happening I'm like whoa what Jess, are you okay <laughs> my I have lawyer friends who texted my husband and to be like she's all right right like <laughs> you fully then, blurred reality for me I had no idea if it was torn off I was like is Kim possibly true should I text Jess and be like are you really okay like is, is something and then I was like no no it has to be a story it's, it's and and I was like riveted I could not stop reading your and you kept going yeah, yeah. I didn't I, day, I, did not I was like wellness check but I also need <laughs> words I also need more like I don't want I want exactly. you to okay but I also want more things to happen well because I didn't think anyone would think it was real I never planned to write after the first chapter like I, I just thought that I would write the story and it would be done people would be like haha that's a funny scary story you almost made me believe it and then people were like no you have to what happens next and I was like 
okay. So over the course of five days, I pulled together this, like, it ended up being like 20,000 words or something. Um, and it was in five chapters. Um, my publisher spotted it too, because I was already working on Words from Hell. And they had me pull it together into an ebook that like people can get for free um if they order the book and then tech and then message my publisher so that's kind of fun um i i this was julian uh julian gamboa's idea by the way he he was like you need to put it into like a sort of a like semi-graphic novel form and so i did i like popped it into canva and and made it sort of laid out so that was fun but i think it was the probably the the video elements and photos that i included because I, I wasn't trying to hoax anyone but i was like it'll be scarier if there's like a picture of the scary fence you know it was perfect. So, no notes. Absolutely no notes. You <laughs> got I, me. Uh, some people got mad at me when they like eventually concluded that it was not real. No. Um, like I had people. It's the ride. Were, were, Enjoy the ride. I yeah. had paranormal <laughs> podcasters who were like, who invited me to be on the podcast and then realized <laughs> it wasn't true. And then we're, we're like, we only do real paranormal story. He's oh, well, <laughs> well then. <laughs> you just gotta That's be like, funny. okay, cool. I'll do LSD and then I'll do the podcast with you, yeah, and I'll, it'll, it'll feel real to me then. <laughs> Christina can go for a walk fifteen minutes away. Come yeah. back with a real story Show up with like real pictures and like yeah, yeah. no, I just got one. <laughs> you can do it. So you mentioned words from hell. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this is all perfect. It's it's October. It's spooky season. We've talked about Neil Gaiman. We've talked about your fantastical monster in the woods. What is Words from Hell? Let us know more. So I write etymology books. That's word origins. And I've been writing about these for like 10 years on my blog, Useless Etymology. Um, I wrote a kid's book. I found when writing the kid's book, it's called Once Upon a Word, that um, I couldn't include a lot of words because the origins were like surprisingly dark or surprisingly raunchy or surprisingly weird and creepy. And my publisher made me take out a bunch of them. And I was like, hmm, maybe this is a book. So I put together a proposal and I was on I was on a podcast after the first book came out talking about Middle English, as you do. Um, and uh, the producer on the podcast was the acquisitions editor for the Chambers line of dictionaries and books. Um, and that's like, that's John Murray Press goes back to like, they published Origin of the Species by Darwin. They published um, Jane Austen, a number of things. So obviously I was very excited about the prospect. And so they asked me like, do you, have you thought about writing a book, another book? Um, and I was like, actually, I have two proposals here. One was Words from Hell. The other one was um, based on my blog. It's called Useless Etymology. And they accepted both. Um, but they wanted Words from Hell first because it's spicier. Um, and uh, and so I put together this thing. It's a, it's, it's a book full of like interesting anecdotes. You can pick it up, open it to any page and read something interesting. It's irreverent. It's full. It's, it's as full of swear words and naughtiness as uh the actual words themselves so it tries to be funny but it also takes things seriously like it talks about ableism and gender bias and racism in everyday words it talks about the origins of swear words which people love like that was the other thing on tiktok my tiktok audience loves learning about swear words <laughs> and they always are wrong about it like they're like they're like fuck is a is an acronym and it absolutely is not it predates acronyms by like two thousand years um but uh um so digging into that kind of stuff was fun. It also has like a, a chapter on scary spookies. So you can learn about the origin of witch and stuff, but it's coming out on Halloween appropriately. I would expect nothing else, but I do have to ask you if you could pick your favorite child. What is your favorite word from hell? 
Oh, ah, no, I can't. I no <laughs> like idea. I love all this swear word. <laughs> I, I, I have a different new favorite word every day. I'm, I'm like opening the book. I'm gonna see if I can find one that actually like catches my eye as like my favorite. Oh, it's so hard. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna be bad at this. Um, I, I, since it's spooky, let's do it. Let's do a spooky season word. Um, one of the ones. Let's see that I particularly liked. Okay. Yeah. This is one of my favorites. Um, the word werewolf, right? So the first element of the word werewolf is the old English word for man. Like the, the words for, for man and woman in old English were were and weef. Um, so werewolf, it literally means man wolf. Um, so, uh, the reason this is my favorite though, is because, um, the where element isn't wasn't a word for like man as in like humanity because you know in english sometimes we use man as a word for general humanity it was specifically people who identify as men like like male gender people um but uh which which means that theoretically there is a word for an old english inspired word for a female werewolf using the old english word for woman which is weef it's the um predecessor of the word wife which in its early days just meant woman um not specifically married woman so a so my my fellow people here we if we were bitten by a, a wolf that could transform us into a lycanthrope would be weef wolves i love it i love it <laughs> so i'm down <laughs> I think it's also interesting you talk about like the swear words you talk about like words that are kind of like censored or like not specifically for this audience I think that we would be remiss with everything else that we've talked about if we did not talk about banned books and and how it's turned into a political minefield of how to control what people have access to so we are all book lovers. We have all been guilty of going to a store and buying 20 books that we're probably not going to even be able to read for the next 10 years, but they will just be added to our family of paper. Yes. <laughs> They'll be added to our family of paper. We'll all have our bookshelves and we'll be ready to go. But I just think it's really important to think to, to think about the concept and the impact of that and how it, it goes against the curiosity and the beauty of humanity and expanding our minds. So with that... Gia, would love to hear your thoughts on banned books. I mean, the whole concept just infuriates me. I think, I, I think it's it's awful that people use that as an excuse for like trying to control what kids learn. And I think, especially at that age, there's just so much curiosity, so much wonder, so much like ability to form worldviews that will take you through the rest of your life and who is this one person or two people that get to decide that? And I think that that whole concept just really irritates me <laughs> that they would, that it's even happening and it continues to happen. Um, and especially you can tell there's a theme with the kind of books that are being targeted. Um, and, and that in and of itself, I think is, is such a tragedy. Sonia? Yeah, this um, hits particularly different now because uh, now as a parent, because um, I have been a book reader my whole life, my whole life. And um, my parents are immigrants to this country, so they never really knew, like, these are like the books that kids are supposed to read. And this, you know, this is what's age appropriate. And um, so I like as soon as I could like finish reading the kids book and then wandered over to the teen section. And then from there, like to the adult section. And to think that like my parents would have stopped me from reading anything, uh, you know, uh, like 
as if they could have, first off. <laughs> uh, second of all, to have tampered my love for reading by telling me what I could and couldn't read. Um, I, I don't think kids can recover from that, like in, in, in such a way, like, I'm sure it has a lasting impression that like, you're not you're not free to like, you know, fill your mind with like new worlds and new, new places and, you know, new stories and new cultures and all, all these things that I explored as a child and as you know growing up because like I was you know just curious about everything um and to think that like there's parents now that want to limit the scope of what their kids are learning um makes no sense to me um is one thing the second thing is I think some people we have allowed them too much leniency in how far they can push their specific like desires and tastes um and beliefs onto the rest of us <laughs> um to read that article about one woman you know filling out spending her day filling out these like you know uh, applications to ban another book because of something she she found fault in um i think is just an egregious way of you know uh being a society um and we need to like put an end to that because like it it, I, it makes no sense to me that one person has that much power because they have the time <laughs> and the wherewithal to spend doing that um and instead of you know i don't know reading a book and learning about other people <laughs> and how they you know uh fit in the world so yeah that, 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 that those are my thoughts <laughs> i have a i have a mini follow-up to that is you know like you i also grew up reading my entire life and I, and, you know, single child syndrome. So I loved being a little introvert, just me and my books. And it like definitely shaped, it shaped me. It shaped, it, it is who I am today. And there's so much I attribute to being able to read whatever I wanted when I was a kid. But I think that we are going to see if this continues, so many kids growing up with fear and growing up with more biases because we're, we're not encouraging curiosity. We're encouraging fear and encu encouraging Limit, limit, limiting yourself and limiting what you can learn and, and putting up more walls amongst us when that's the opposite of what we should be doing. We should be breaking down those walls. We have more access to technology and things and, and information than we ever did growing up, all of us here. And I think that we're using that to build more walls, which makes does not make sense to me. So Christine, I would also like to get your take on this too, because you have kids who are probably impacted by this and they're at an age where they need to be feeling out difficult and formative topics and asking why and how about things that are going to impact their bodies and their lives. It's, it's critical. Um, but um, first of all, you're never going to be on the right side of history by challenging book publication. Like that's never going to be that like, hard. do you even, do you even Bradbury? Like what on earth? Yep. Um, it also it's telling which books are the ones challenged. It's the the Diary of Anne Frank. It's beloved. It's I, I there was a um there was a Girl Scout Girl Scout book that I read when I, I was a kid called like the Care and Keeping of You or maybe it was like American Girl and it was like it, it had illustrations of like how to use feminine products and though that ends up on banned book lists and like there's nothing sexual about it. It is literally like how your vagina makes goop sometimes you know and that's important information it was a very yeah. useful book when I was a kid you know and like it, it 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 ends up challenging things that like that lead to Jewish erasure to the stigmatization of women's bodies like to to things that like it 
it causes shame, it challenges love, it challenges modes of affection and the way we communicate with one another. And it's almost never like, you know, it's never going to challenge Hemingway for being borderline misogynistic. You know, it's never going to it's never going to run into the classic um, white uh, North American great American author. It's always going to be the it's going to be people who have historically been othered who are being further othered and then newer books that are exploring new ways that younger generations are expressing uh, love and affection and and redefining relationships. It's, it's always going to be that aspect of things. So I don't know. That's that's my take on it. You're never you're never going to be the good guy in that fight on in the long run. History will always determine that you are you are the one who's who's preventing people from expressing themselves. I agree with that. I think my take is, um, like you said, I have kids and they are deeply curious and deeply funny and they always want to learn more. And I think stifling that is such a crime. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm a firm believer that education will solve or could solve so many problems in the world and books are the great equalizer. And that's why I think that they're being attacked. You may not be able to go to the private school. You may not be able to have tutors, but you can go into a public library and you can arm yourself and learn about just about anything. And to be able to fence some of those ideas and honestly, those worlds, you're cutting worlds off from people. There are people who can't travel, but they can read. I've, I was very, I'm not an only child, but I lived in books my whole childhood. Anytime I was having a rough day, I escaped. I went into a book, I went into a world that was just, whether there were dragons, whether there were wizards, whether there were, was death, whatever, it was still the escape of my choice. And so I can't imagine gating those worlds from people and saying, I just don't think that you should be able to enter that world. I don't think that you should be able to think about those thoughts. And I think when it comes down to it, it really comes down to, I think Gia, you were the one that brought it up was it's about control. And so if you can control what people have access to and you can control the worlds and the perspectives that they can see, you're fencing their thinking. You're able to control more about what they're what they're even capable of thinking about. And there's a great, I find that book readers, especially the most passionate ones, tend to be deeply empathetic. And it's because they've read about stories other than their own. They've lived the lives of things other than their own. And so they're able to really kind of see things from different perspectives and empathize. And I think that that's just, it's just a shame that in a world where you could expand your mind, there are people who seek to close it off. Absolutely. I think that well also said. brings in, uh, sorry. Um, I think that also brings up an interesting point about um, one of my pet peeves on Twitter is people that say that they're readers, but they only read nonfiction. And I'm like, you're missing out. So it's a red flag. That is the red flag for me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You must read fiction. Like you have to, in order to, like you said, Christina, have that empathy for other people and like think about other people, not just yourself and how you fit into the world, but then also how you fit into the world by like learning all these like different things about what you like, what you don't like. Um, and I feel, you know, people that are limiting themselves to only reading, you know, productivity books and, you know, success, like business, business case books. I'm just like, you, you need to actually read fiction to learn more about humanity who are the customers that you're, you know, trying to sell to. Um, so that just uh, brought that to mind. <laughs> no, I think that's a that, great point. That, that's, that's sorry. That's a, that's a huge red flag for me, but I think it also speaks to the escapism 
because what sort of privilege do you have and what sort of power do you have that you have the luxury of not needing to escape? You have, you have no, you have no reason to want to be in a different world. You have everything you need. You can just read the same Carnegie book 20 million times. You don't need (laughs) fiction. I think that speaks to their own, their own um, existence. They don't have a reason to escape. Whereas others, that is the ticket. Like I, I can't fly away. I can't like leave everything behind, but I could, I could go into a completely different world and spend hours there. And I think, I think it speaks to that. I think that whenever I see someone and they don't read any fiction, that's a red flag, but it also makes me wonder, like, what is it about your life that you don't need more? (laughs) There's also no desire to understand other people's, um, how other people live, how other people function, Mm -hmm. how other worlds and people different from you so I think it's very much trying to maintain this like the world I live in is the world I live in and there's it there's no other reality that exists outside of this bubble um and Jess you were you were gonna say something no worries um I was just gonna say to be a little more flippant than all of you I love saying that I love uh, it's just gonna like stick a middle <laughs> finger and like Do it. Out. Let's go. no for real though like saying I love reading but I only read nonfiction is like saying I love art but I only look at photography like mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, no yeah yeah, yeah, yeah fuck yeah, that for sure. I mean I write nonfiction but <laughs> that's nonsense <laughs> well but even you spoke to that right like how much of fiction goes into your nonfiction work and yes. <laughs> Terry Pratchett um, is my favorite influence for my nonfiction writing you know the man who created Discworld <laughs> but even your nonfiction you're telling stories of how things came to be there is mm-hmm. an element of storytelling that is beyond just like facts there it, there's and that's mythology so in it. Mm-hmm. yes and also why I'm very excited for my pre-order to get here <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So before we are, we are wrapping up, but before we leave, assuming we have other book club members that are listening right now would love you to, and, and honestly, words from hell can be the, can be the answer. What is the one book that book clubs should read next? I have to check my, so I have to check my recent, recent reads. Like, can I come up? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like okay. Should have done this. this We can we can say that we we have recently read. We did Yellowface. We did um, A Turn of the Key. That was really fun. We did uh, The City We Became. And uh, what was the sequel to The City We Became? The World world We we Keep or World We Make. Keep there. And then um, Mm -hmm. so those were really good. Highly recommend all of the ones that we've read in, in this group. We did lots of Neil Gaiman, and I will be so happy to read more. I was looking at stuff that I've read recently, though, because I think I have some more. You should read, especially because I think it'll make sense as you see words of, words from hell as like mythology. You should read Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology. Oh, I would love to. You should absolutely oh, yeah. read that. Oh, I just I recently read um, The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. Yes. That was Ooh. a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yes. I definitely recommend that one. Um the Priory of the Orange Tree is one that I had been sitting on for a long time. Very glad I read it, but it's quite like it's quite long and dense. So you have to be very interested in like fully immersing yourself in a, in a very involved fantasy world. So highly recommend that one. Yeah, I have an IRL book club too here in Los Angeles. <clears throat> but we recently read and it fits kind of with the fantasy theme. It's called A White Cat, Black Dog by Kelly Link. 
and they're short stories that are um, retellings of um, the Grimm brothers stories. Um, so the very interesting, um, very weird, uh, dark, but also funny, but also very immersive. Um, yeah, and they're short stories. So maybe less of a lift for those of you who don't want to read a very big book, but I enjoyed it. And there's some stories I enjoyed more than others, but I was definitely left with a very active imagination. And I think good for spooky season too. This, that does feel like um, a fit for this group. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was going to suggest since uh, Loki just premiered, um, uh, and I know we all mm. love that one as well, is um, one of uh, a favorite that I recently read was uh, Genevieve Kornishek. She wrote The Witch's Heart, which is a retelling of Loki's um, like love affair and marriage to a witch, uh, which I didn't know that was part of that mythology, but um, it just kind of like tells a story from her perspective and how Loki kind of comes and goes and she's kind of building her family and like raising them. Um, and they have, you know, the, the two children who, you know, end up destroying the world or whatever, but it was really great. And it was super interesting. Um, and she just came out with a new book um, that I'm also going to read uh, the Weaver and the white witch, oh, sorry, and the witch queen um, that um, I already started. And it's like, you know, um, really, I'm, I'm really liking. Um, but along those lines, um, Chloe Zhang uh, just wrote this book that's a retelling of um, Shakespeare's Mark um, and Cle uh, Mark Anthony and Cleopatra called Immortal Longings. That is also good. Um, and the last one I'm going to do, um, it's not, it's a nonfiction, it's, an, it's a memoir, but it um, hits kind of close to home because it's uh, this Salvadoran immigrant um, and how he came to this country. So it's just really in-depth, beautiful writing and storytelling of what the immigrant's journey um, for him was um, that really um, was close to what my, my brother uh, and my parents, you know, went through. And that's um, Javier Zamora's um, Solito. Oh, wonderful. I'm really glad you brought up um, a witch's, The Witch's Heart because my objective for October is to only read books with witch in the title. Um, oh. And so far I've done, I've gotten through two already because I had uh, a good amount of time the other day. Um, but the Bell Witch and um, the Vine Witch. And I wanted to reread The Witches Abroad. I wanted to read The Very Secret Society of Irregular Witches. And now I'm going to add The Witch's Heart. And I'm looking forward to, if you have, if I have any more, or if our listeners have any more, I'm, I'm collecting witch books. Very which cool. witch book would you recommend? <laughs> <laughs> love that. Um, I, I love all of those. I've read some of those. I still need to add some of those to my list. I am reading a book talk one um that basically bullied me because my FYP kept showing it to me over and over again I was like fine universe I'll listen and it's the secret history by Donna Tart. um it's about like going to a liberal arts college and I went to a liberal arts college and so um it's been very interesting to see how like the similarities but also just the vast differences in the experience and so um diving into that now which has been very interesting did you awesome. read um what's the other one she wrote the the one with the bird I'm not I'm, re okay. I'm reading that next. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go through. I, I read that uh, one updated. or I started reading it and I didn't like it, but I hear that the, the secret history is like better than that one. Um, the so Goldfinch. I, I'm like tempted. The goldfinch. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I knew there was a bird. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I'm tempted to read it. So let me know what you think. Yeah. So far, so far it's very good. So far it's very, um, it's it's richly written, but it also has, it feels like mature YA, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Like not in a spicy way, but in a like, mm -hmm. 
we we went to Latin class kind of way. <laughs> <laughs> like like we had Latin. I love that. That's a yeah. great That's review. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of like YA, but like everyone everyone has like taken their Latin exams. Um, but it's, it's good. <laughs> so far, so good. First time I've ever uh, heard that one. <laughs> It's a new it's a new category for Barnes and Noble. This is like the, mm-hmm. they took a Latin class section. Mm-hmm. I honestly I would read from that one. So like give me right? feed me the end cap, please. Do it. Do it. <laughs> this has been absolutely amazing. It's been lovely speaking with all of you and and really kind of picking your brains when it comes to book clubs and culture and TikTok and everything in between. So thank all of you for joining me and talking about this. If anyone wants to learn more about you, they want to see what you're doing in on Twitter or somewhere else, or they want to get words from hell, Jess, where can they find you? Uh, let's see. So I am at Jess Zafaris, J-E-S-S-Z-A-F-R-A-R-R-I-S. I can spell my name. Um, <laughs> pretty much everywhere. I also have a blog called Useless Etymology, where I post news and facts about word origins that you probably didn't expect um and uh i I think that covers it but tiktok if you like tiktok then come find me on tiktok wonderful sonia where can they find you i'm at sonia bachez uh everywhere so easy peasy (laughs) amazing and gia how can they find you i'm at jessing gia which is j-a-i-s-i-n-g-h-j-i-y-a pretty much everywhere too so come find me happy to chat So whether you're a longtime aficionado or a recent convert, Fan of the Fans is the place to be. Join us every month as we celebrate your passion, your dedication, and your love of all things fandom. 